0: hard to be a Christian, but as one author said, it's too dull to be anything else. How do you feel about that statement? Is it true of you? I'd like to modify that line a bit and project it a little further to anyone who has already become a disciple of Christ. It's hard to be involved in Christian ministry, but it's too disdainful to be anything but. That's a difficult statement to accept. Isn't it? It's a rather strong statement, and yet how true it is. A follower of Christ who is not nor wants to be tangibly involved in his ministry and in what he's doing in the world is a contradiction in terms. Let me put it another way How ridiculous would this sound to you? I'm a fireman. But I refuse, however, to wear the required clothing, gear. I absolutely will not put myself in any kind of dangerous situation at all. I despise the smell of smoke on my clothes. There is no way I will get up on a ladder. I hate to get wet. Please don't call me in the middle of the night. I'll put in my time at the meetings at the firehouse once a week, but don't ask me to volunteer for any community service gatherings. I'm too busy and oh yes, make sure and call me for the picnics because they're a lot of fun. (laughs) Now how far would that guy get in any kind of fire department? They'd hose the guy down. How about a baseball player who wanted all the glory, the huge contract, the proud uniform, the admiration of all the fans yet was never willing to get off the bench. Or a fisherman that had all the right equipment, he had the boats, he had everything, could recognize every fish that you could name, all their habits, understood their feeding habits, their mating habits, all of this, yet never ventured beyond the puddle in his backyard. You see, a fireman that won't fight fires and a baseball player that won't get in the game and a fisherman that doesn't fish and a Christian that refuses to serve are all contradictions in terms. When Jesus chooses followers, he chooses them to be involved, to serve. Because Christ's ministry is the Christian's mandate. We're talking a lot about mandates, aren't we? Let's get it straight, though. That's what biblical discipleship in the real world is all about. Every disciple of Christ is called, commissioned, and expected to get involved in some sort of kingdom work. Jesus uses every kind of person imaginable to accomplish his mission. So none of us, then, that are followers of Christ can escape our responsibility. God taps each one of us on the shoulder, and he calls us to follow his son, Jesus in the ministry if we are saved, if we are Christians. In the process, which we call discipleship. By the way, that word is not in the New Testament. The word discipleship is not found in the New Testament. Disciple is found. But discipleship is something we've come up with to talk about the process of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. But he transforms us in that process, complete with our weaknesses and failures, and uses us, ordinary men and women, to communicate the gospel of salvation, thereby accomplishing extraordinary things for his kingdom. Amen? One of the tragedies of contemporary Christianity is that many who claim to represent Jesus Christ are either representing him Poorly, or, or they're not representing him at all. As followers of Christ, we're called to be participants in the ministry of the gospel, and we cannot do that faithfully and effectively unless we understand the principles he gave in order to carry out that ministry. Fortunately, these general principles are available to us as the Lord first gave them to, to the 12 original missionaries that he sent out on their first short-term missions trip. So, we're going to look at this for the next few weeks. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and actually we're going to work our way through Matthew chapter 10 over the next few weeks. I'm going to read the first four verses, and then verses 5 through 15, but I'm not preaching on the first four verses because I've done a series on the disciples individually, which took a long time to get through, fairly recently, so you can go back in the archive and listen to that. But I'm going to pick it up for our purposes from, chap- from verse 5. But I'll read the first four verses to get the context. So, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, "'Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, "'and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, "'but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. "'And as you go, preach, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." Even though this mission given to the original 12 was slightly different from the final one given to all Christians just before Jesus' ascension in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Great Commission, within this context of Jesus' instructions, we can draw out seven timeless principles that are transferable to the life and ministry of every Christian in this room. That means you and me. If you're a Christian, we're not going to go through all seven today. Just going to go through a few today and we'll finish that up next week. But my friends, please do not write them off thinking they don't apply to you. Instead, write them down because they do apply to you. Okay, we're going to show you how initially, before we can effectively minister for Christ, every one of us must realize the necessity first of a clear commission. We have a clear commission, just like the original 12 did. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Okay? Matthew records that after giving them instructions, Jesus sent them out. He didn't just gather them together in a group and keep them all to himself. He sent them out. You're getting that right? Sent them out. That's exactly what the word apostle means. One sent with a message. I'd like to point something out immediately here. Watch this now. Might hurt a little bit. They didn't volunteer for this ministry. They were commissioned for this ministry. They didn't volunteer. Jesus didn't put up a sign. He didn't put a notice in the bulletin or on the screen in the church. We need volunteers. They willingly followed Christ when He first called them. But they had no idea what that would entail. No idea whatsoever. He said something about making them fishers of men, but I seriously doubt that they knew what he was talking about at the time. If you watch The Chosen, the way they depict it there, it's like they're all arguing. What's he going to do with us? What does he want us to do? I don't even know where to start. And then somebody, smart guy, wise guy said, it doesn't matter. Just follow him. Right? So they didn't know what they were going to be doing but they followed Jesus. Jesus was the one who chose their ministry for them. Are you getting that? They didn't volunteer. Jesus chose them. John 15, verse 16 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, the specific word Matthew used here in verse 5 for instruct actually means to give orders and direction. It means to notify or announce as a military commander sending soldiers out on a campaign would. Or a teacher outlining rules to his students. It was a term the Greeks used to describe the imperial command of a king to his ambassadors. I like that picture. Because we're ambassadors for Christ, aren't we? Jesus didn't ask his disciples what they'd like to do for him. Oh, what would you like to do for me? No, he instructed them as to what he wanted them to do for him. And then he sent them out to do it. In fact, by sending them out, he was fulfilling exactly what he had in mind for them the very first day that he called them. In Mark chapter 3, in verses 13 to 15... It says that he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted. That's the call. And they came to him. That's the response. And he appointed 12. That's his choosing. So that they would, what? Be with him first. They would follow him. And that he would send them out to preach. And to have authority to cast out demons. Which is right in line with what we read here in chapter 10. So it's not necessarily what I'm saying here is that the call of these 12 is the same exact instructions to you, but the general principle is, is that Jesus gives us instructions. We have a clear commission, amen? They were on a mission from God. I said that last week. Listen, friends, when Jesus called you to be his disciple, he called you with the intention of sending you out somewhere. Right out of the chute, he knew what ministry he had picked for you to do. Do you think that he saved you just so that you can be a Christian? No, he's got something for you to do. Whether it's in your home or in the church or out in the world or on the mission field, he's got something for you to do. The question is, are you engaged in it? Do you have any idea what it is that he's called you to do? And then following up on that is, are you attempting to find out? That's the critical area, right? Are you even attempting to find out? I think we're like, like, I don't want to know. Might hurt. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this should be your passion, trying to figure out what that is, finding out what it is, and then getting engaged in it. I'm sure you've heard the cliche that in any given church, approximately 10% of the people are doing 100% of the work, right? Why is that? Doesn't Jesus know what he's doing in his church? Well, of course he does. The question is do people know what Jesus is doing? And do they even want to know what Jesus is doing? Years ago, author Bill Hull was pretty accurate when he pointed out that the church might be compared to the situation in football stadiums all over the country on any given Sunday. While fans sit and complain and scream about the way the game is being played, the reality is is that there are 22 men on the field trying to get the job done in desperate need of rest and 80,000 criticizing people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. Most churches, they get people involved by asking for volunteers, right? We do it here too. What would you like to do? But I'm telling you that that is not the way Jesus does ministry. As a pastor, I'm challenging you point blank and ought to be challenging people not with the question of what you want to do, but what does Jesus want you to do for his kingdom? in this ministry, might not even be in this church. Ooh, did a pastor really say that? <laughs> if he puts you in the body, he's got something for you to accomplish for him. This is some straight talk from the Apostle Peter, okay? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another, As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what that tells me? That tells me that it's assumed. That tells me that it's a given. In other words, if you're not doing it, you're not fulfilling the responsibility as a disciple of Christ and a member of his body. Peter doesn't say, figure it out. He says, as each one has received. It's assumed. Listen, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. I'm just preaching the Scriptures. But I also believe that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to bring conviction where it's needed. And we just heard example after example from our brother George this morning, right? The Word does its work. If you don't know what Jesus wants you to do, maybe you're not in the Word enough. Maybe you're not in prayer enough, asking God, show me, because I'll guarantee you, you start praying right now. And by the time a month or two months has transpired, if you're sincerely seeking Christ, he will show you what he wants you to do. Then it's a matter of saying yes or no. That's the hard part. Now, I've seen this church grow mightily over the years that I've been here. Jesus has called many people in here and out. I believe with all my heart that he would not pour people in without raising people up. Okay? Either Jesus has changed his pattern of growing a church, or we're not listening to his call. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And then verses 4 to 6. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God... To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay, that's step one. You know what the problem is with a living sacrifice, don't you? The cliche goes like this. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. For just as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. They don't just sit on the shelf. My wife and I are in the process of moving. She keeps telling me, you've got to get rid of that stuff. It's been sitting on the shelf for 20 years. You haven't touched it yet. And I'm like, but I might need it someday, right? She said, no, toss the thing. And she's right. Well, that's a sad, that's a sad story when it describes a Christian that has gifts that have been sitting on the shelf for the 20 years they've been following Christ, supposedly, right? Why aren't they being used? So how do you know he's calling you to certain ministries? Here are a few of the requirements necessary. This is where you block your ears because you don't want to know, right? All right. Conversion and commitment to Christ. That's step one. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 talks about following before fishing principle. We won't have to turn there, but Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You've got to be following Christ before you can be doing work for him. Correct? All right, so every one of us needs to have a conversion, a conversation with the Lord. A conversation known as a DTR. You ever hear of a DTR? Years ago, it was a popular phrase among younger people. Now those people are older. DTR, the letters stand for define the relationship. You need to define your relationship with the Lord. It generally gets used in relationships between a man and a woman that have romantic overtones but are squishy about permanence and exclusivity. That's where it originated from. It's a clarion call for the relational clarity. Are we in this relationship for laughs or are we in it for keeps? You need to have that conversation with Jesus. In Jesus' day, being in relationship with him inevitably involved having some spiritual DTR. Jesus was constantly calling for this in his relationships on earth. One author writes, nobody ever went away from an encounter with Jesus saying, that was a good talk. Never. Jesus gently but relentlessly asked people to make a decision about their relationship with him. And the fundamental decision involved this invitation. Follow me. Come be with me. And learn from me how to be like me. That was Jesus' initial invitation. So when you accept that invitation, now you got a DTR. You got to define the relationship. So that's the first step. Number two is compulsion of heart. Compulsion of heart. We could see that in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm thirty-seven and verse four, for example. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. So what does verse 4 mean? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the, the desires of your heart. means like it's an open book, you can ask him for anything, and he'll just give it to you. Maybe it means delight yourself in the Lord and he will put the desires in your heart that he wants so yours will be matched to his. And if that's the case, you're not going to be able to sit still. You'll have a holy discontent with something. It's one of those things, right? Holy discontent, you know what that is? Is It's something you're so passionate about, about the kingdom work, that you can't stand it. It's the old Popeye thing. I've had all I can stand, I can't stand no more right? And then he gets to work. And that's what it is. So the compulsion of heart, he will give you the desires in your heart. Thirdly, the consideration of the word. You need to go to the word. You need to kind of bask in the the glory of this word and let God talk to you about what he wants you to do. Things like Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5 talk about this, okay? Okay? Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Pray that prayer. Pray it every day for the next six months and then come back to me and tell me you don't know what Christ wants you to do. You'll be the first one, okay? Lead me in your truth, verse 5 says, and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Make that your prayer. Consideration of the word. The closer you walk with him, the more you will desire what he wants. And then four, communication with the Lord. Communication with the Lord. You need to pray about these things. That's James chapter 1, verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It didn't say it might be given to him. It says it will be given to him. Possibly the best way to picture this learning process here is to imagine with me for a moment the scene in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, I'm not going to go there and unpack that whole thing, but I'll just give you a general reference to it. That's the scene where Mary and Martha are with Jesus in Lazarus' house. Martha's running around doing all this prep work. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Sitting at his feet, which is a euphemism that means she's learning from him as a rabbi. And Jesus said, Mary's part was the good part. Martha, you're too stressed out, too worried about all these things. Do what Mary does and follow me. Okay? Sitting at his feet. Jesus staying on this particular occasion with Martha and Mary. Mary's sitting at his feet to learn. Martha works in the kitchen Complains that she's not getting any help. She's in the same house with him, but they're worlds apart, right? Mary and Martha are worlds apart in their their relationship with Jesus at that point. Somebody hasn't done the DTR yet. She has proximity, Martha, but not intimacy. Intimacy. One author writes, To sit at someone's feet was a technical expression in ancient times to indicate the relationship between a disciple and the rabbi. Sitting at the Lord's feet is an assertion that Mary had made the fundamental choice in the decision of her life. To make someone your rabbi has fundamentally, was fundamentally a choice about being with him. All the time. Morning, noon, and night. Okay? A disciple was someone who had chosen to be with his rabbi as much as possible in order to learn everything from him. Biblical scholar Ray Vanderlaan notes that the first century Jews had a blessing that beautifully expresses the commitment of a disciple to stay in the presence of the one that he followed. And this is it May you always be covered in the dust of your rabbi. I love that statement. That is, may you follow him so closely that the dust his feet kicks up is what cakes your clothing and lines your face. I had a thought as I was preparing this message, knowing that I was going to do communion. I was talking about, you know, how you need to, you got your heart clean, but you need to wash off the daily grime from the world that you live in. What a complete opposite thing that we have here. When you're covered in the dust of your rabbi, you don't want that to go away, right? So what mattered was not so much the particular activity that they were doing together. What mattered was being with their rabbi, whatever was going on. Every activity was an opportunity to learn from the rabbi how to be like the rabbi. So you and I can be sitting at the rabbi's feet when I'm kneeling in prayer. Or when I'm negotiating a contract. Or fixing my kid's lunch. Or watching a movie. All it requires is my asking him to be my teacher and companion in this moment. Make sense? So let the letters DTR take on one more meaning. Dust of the rabbi. That represents how Jesus invites us to define the relationship, to intend to live so much in Jesus' presence that we are dusty disciples. Okay? So compulsion of heart, consideration of the word, communication with the Lord. Number five, confirmation of your peers. That's how you figure out what Jesus wants you to do too because your church friends, families, individuals, other Christians will see that gift operating in you and they'll encourage you in it. And then finally, clarification of opportunity. Clarification of opportunity. In James chapter 4, in verse 17, we see, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Back up a little bit for the context. says, verse 14, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you want to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Clarification of opportunities. God puts something in your path. You know from the gut. You know from that nervous pounding of your heart right through your breastbone that Jesus wants you to do it, and then you don't do it. You ever have that feeling? that guilt feeling afterwards. When Christ clarifies an opportunity for you, step into it. You think it was easy for Jeff to step into this role? No. Was it easy for me to step into my role 33 years ago? Absolutely not. My knees were knocking like crazy. Chris, Henry, anyone... Listen, I don't want people volunteering for things because they feel guilty. (laughs) I want people to come forward and, and, and do ministry because they have a responsibility to obey God's call. He is the one who calls and who commissions. We have a responsibility to respond to that. Ministry is effective only when we realize first that we have a clear commission. But also, effective ministry takes place when we understand secondly that we have a concise objective. Back to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5 again. Jesus instructed them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right? Concise objective. Jesus told them exactly what he wanted them to do. The late Howard Hendricks had this definitive statement on this one. He says, you know what? You aim at nothing and you will hit it every time. And that's true. As John MacArthur once pointed out and preached, a ministry that is not focused on certain priority objectives is a ministry doomed to mediocrity. God doesn't expect us to do everything in sight. Every church, every ministry, every believer has a specific objective and a purpose to fulfill which adds to the overall purpose of Christ in this world. It is when we confuse... Now watch this. It is when we confuse our specific call to ministry on a personal level with the overall ministry of the church on a global level that we often get frustrated and exhausted. Let me say that again, in case you're writing it down. I should have put it on the screen. It is when we confuse our specific call to ministry on a personal level with the overall ministry of the church on a global level, that we often get frustrated and exhausted. So this is kind of like, this is, like a, this is good news to you, okay, and to me. We may be attempting to do more than he actually called us to do, if we confuse those things. Moreover, we can become counterproductive to the cause. On another level, God may be calling you to do something specifically on a personal level that he's not calling the church to do on a corporate level. That's super important to understand. Your specific calling may not be this church's calling, so don't expect the church to get on board with your ministry if God's calling you to it but not calling the church to it. And that's a tricky thing to kind of figure out with prayer and with fasting and with the word okay but know this we can't do singly what the local church can do corporately we just don't have the resources but we also can't expect to do the church to do corporately what God has called us to do personally so if here's a here's a simple example if God has called you to witness to your next door neighbor Don't come running to the church and ask one of the pastors to go do it for you. That's your call. That's what Christ called you specifically to do. Yes, we're supposed to be involved in that, supporting, equipping, and all of that kind of thing. But if God's called you to do a specific thing, don't pass it off on the church so you can get off easy. Also, remember this, the small church can't do everything that the large church can do. We've got caught up in that rat race so many times. A wise leader knows that he must sometimes limit his objectives. The smaller his forces, the the more limited his focus needs to be. Jesus didn't send the 12 out on a haphazard mission here. It was specific and it was pointed. He sent them out with a clear and concise objective. Not only did he tell them what their target was, but he also told them what they were to avoid. That's important. You need to know what not to do as well as what you should be doing. Again, look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Very clear, very concise. Now you might be asking yourself, isn't Jesus' message for everyone? Aren't we supposed to preach the gospel to the whole world? Why did he forbid them to go to the Gentiles and the Samaritans? Well, there are a couple of things we need to understand in order to answer that question. First, this... Mission in chapter 10 was only a temporary mission. Clearly, Jesus changed those instructions later on in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you can look at that. He says to be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Secondly, at this point, he had only 12 helpers and they weren't prepared to preach to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. You need to know that in, in the eyes of a Jew... Um, Gentiles were considered totally unclean and Samaritans were completely despised. They didn't really relate to these cultures and they had no understanding of how to bridge that gap yet. As William Barclay noted, a message has little chance of success if the messenger is ill-equipped to deliver it. And these disciples were not equipped yet by Jesus to deliver that message to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. At this particular time, They were too limited in their knowledge as well as in their number. One scholar suggested this. He said their hearts were too narrow. Their prejudices were too strong. There was too much of the Jew and too little of the Christian in their character, unquote. See, they had to grow also. And that's what Jesus does. He calls you to a ministry. He equips you as you go. And you grow and he expands it. So the Lord's initial mission was for them narrow and limited. It was designed to prepare the way for him, Jesus, as he went preaching the gospel. And to prepare them for the larger mission to come, get their feet wet. I believe Jesus works with us in the same exact manner. Sometimes he changes the scope of our ministries as he develops our gifts and as we gain more understanding and maturity. Okay? In Acts chapter 8, for example, Peter and John were sent to the Samaritans. So clearly the mission changed. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was sent to a Gentile, Cornelius and his family. Clearly the mission changed. And then thirdly, you need to know that the Jews held a unique place in God's plan. They were God's chosen people by covenant. It was to them and through them that salvation would come first. You can see that in John chapter 4, verse 22. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. He told her, salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Messiah would come from the Jews. And the Messiah was promised to the nation of Israel, and through them, then the Gentiles and Samaritans alike would enter into God's covenant. So the mission that Jesus gave to the 12 on this occasion was very clear, very concise. The objectives were clear, and an effective ministry demands that you and I have a clear and concise objective keeping in step with the Lord's will as well. So we have things like mission statements and vision statements and things like that. Do you know what Baptist Church's mission statement is? If you've been here for any length of time, you should. Right? Somebody tell me what it is. Excellent. To introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them to become his committed followers. That's very clear. That's very concise, right? First Light, the radio ministry that I've been engaged in for 25, 26 years. We have a clear and concise objective. It's this. Our aim is to provide practical teaching for godly living in contemporary society. In other words, we're communicating spiritual truth in a relevant way in order to affect spiritual change. That's the mission. Very clear, very concise. You're going to have a personal call. You have, some of you have life verses. I'm sure they're very particular and concise and clear to what God's called you to do. I just preached on mine a couple of weeks ago, 2 Timothy 4 2. Preach the word. Be ready at season and out of season, and on and on it goes. Okay? Even secular organizations state their objectives clearly and concisely. Perfect popcorn is our passion. I love that one. Right? What's your personal objective as a Christian? Have you figured it out? Do you have one? Can you clearly articulate it? Jesus calls us to engage in effective ministry within his body, his church, and that requires that we understand, first, that we have been given a clear commission. Secondly, that we become focused on a concise objective. Thirdly, we are to communicate a central message. We have a central message that drives the whole thing forward. That's in verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message needs to be preached more so now than I think ever. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I just, I just said that to somebody this week, as a matter of fact, and I couldn't believe it was coming out of my mouth. You know, because usually, you know, when you say something like that and it's Doomsday type of a thing, right? Well, they were talking about the signs of the times and all these things, and I said, yep, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If there's one thing that is rampant in today's world, it's confusion about what a ministry or a person is trying to communicate. Would you say that? That's pretty clear by the reaction most people have to church out there in the secular world. What is the message people get about the church's ministry today? You tell me. What do you think it is? Often people have no idea what the central message of the church is. To them, Christianity is communicated this way. It's a political, bigoted, greedy, and irrelevant platform. Isn't that what your friends out there in the world that don't know Christ think? When you invite them to church, they don't want to come to church because they think it's political and bigoted and greedy and irrelevant. Of course, sometimes the fault is on the side of those receiving the message, but more times than I care to admit, the fault is on the fact that many churches, many ministries, and Christian individuals don't communicate to the world the clear and central message of the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In our day of political posturing and social media pandering and denominational exclusiveness and diverse theological opinions, there is a danger that, as one pastor has said, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ is sometimes so encumbered with secondary matters and human interpretations that the world has absolutely no idea what the church's central message is. Jesus gave the disciples a very simple and clear message to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Literally, the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. Of course, he was talking about himself, Jesus. But now we have the same message, and we're preaching that Jesus is coming again. Amen? And you can have a personal relationship with him now. You will live in your heart. It was the message of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. It was the same message that Jesus proclaimed in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 and 23. That message was the message every Jew longed to hear. They expected the Messiah to come and rule on earth as promised in the Old Testament. Jesus was that Messiah. The fact that he came in humility and that he preached spiritual truth and that he offered a spiritual salvation before the physical could take place totally shook the Jews off guard, took the Jews off guard. Consequently, they rejected him and the fulfillment of the kingdom promises of an earthly reign had to be postponed. At the time of this mission in, in Matthew 10, the kingdom was at hand, so to speak. He was right there. The Messiah had come. The kingdom was close. And that was the message that the apostles were given to preach. Later, after the nation rejected Jesus and crucified him, that message would take on another form. Our message, the one that the church has proclaimed since the day of Pentecost, is the favorable news that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and that he is coming again. Essentially, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but this is how you get there, right? By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ. The kingdom of God will be established on earth when Christ comes again, but no one knows when that will be, according to Acts 1, verse 6. But right now, it is an invisible spiritual kingdom made up of every person who has placed their total trust in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. He rules and reigns in the hearts of Christians spiritually. Amen? But one day when Christ returns, it will be a physical, tangible kingdom as well. That'll be a day, won't it? Nobody will care when November comes around anymore. Because there'll be no more voting. There'll be no more politics. There'll be no no more anything like that. Because he will rule and reign in person. So there are three basic characteristics of the kingdom described in scriptures. Number one, the condition for entering is personal. Number two, the character is spiritual. And number three, the consummation will be physical. You just remember that. Plenty of scriptures to support those. But the central message of the kingdom revolves around the king, Jesus Christ. Amen? Whatever ministry you find yourself called to will be characterized by that same fact. You can rest assured on that. If you're involved in a ministry that does not proclaim Jesus as king, frankly, it's not a ministry. Jesus is king is the central message of every Christian ministry. Should be. Whatever ministry that you find yourself called to will have that as an underlying factor, as the foundation. It's totally about Jesus. That's important to understand. It's the the dividing line. It's the difference between spiritual ministry and social services. That message is not the centerpiece of your ministry, this serious question, as I said, that it even is a ministry. See, the kingdom of heaven is not about arguing our particular brand of churchianity. Not at all. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of Jesus Christ right now in our hearts later on on this earth. That is what we ask for when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the king. It is his kingdom that we are passionately involved in. And the central message of the kingdom is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That message isn't clear, then the ministry will be ineffective for carrying out the objectives to which you and I have been commissioned. And we'll find ourselves burning out and exhausting our efforts on all kinds of things that may seem really good at the time, but have absolutely no eternal value. So ask yourself the question as we close. What am I dedicating my life to as a Christian, as a Christ follower, that is contributing to the building up of his kingdom? That's your question to go home and meditate on. Here's a piece of insight as we close straight out of a television interview with a float builder. No? Float builder? Parades? Just after the annual Rose Bowl parade in Pasadena, California, a young float builder was interviewed and asked whether he enjoyed constructing those huge, multifaceted floats every year. When he replied that he really did enjoy it, he was asked if he had considered doing it as a career choice. His response was a decisive no. And then he explained why. Listen to his explanation. Quote, I could never imagine investing so much of myself into something that's thrown into the scrap pile within a matter of weeks. Unquote. How many people are selling themselves short By investing so much in such insignificant, temporal, and trivial causes. As disciples of Christ, shouldn't we be investing in something that will last eternally? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be investing ourselves in the kingdom for the service and the glory of God? What ministry is God calling you to be involved in to accomplish that objective. Let's pray. Father, thanks for choosing us and allowing us to be considered worthy to work alongside of you, not because of anything in ourselves as to things coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from you. You empower us with the Holy Spirit to do above and beyond what we could ever possibly imagine for your glory and for your kingdom. God, give us insight and wisdom and a willing heart to do just that. For the sake of your glory, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.